Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today. We have another very interesting topic that the panelists will be bringing up. Glad you're joining us on live stream YouTube. So you can do your chat in that little window there, and we're monitoring it. And the panelists will get get back to you. If you want to suggest a topic for Hello, a future everyone, show, welcome. Oh, come on. Bible Quest. Jeff, take it over. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Jeff Smelter in Exton, Pennsylvania. And we have Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana, and Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, guys. Hello. Hello, Jeffrey. What do you think? Do we need a new uh do we need a new uh tech person to direct and produce this program i just think we we need a new crew this is like uh you know herding cats or something i don't know and he said this is a very interesting topic today truth be told um you guys kind of covered this a couple of weeks ago i think when i was out of town and uh but but i didn't get to be here for it so i want to redo it right we, we've actually talked about our topic today for a couple of weeks uh we're going to talk about the land promise and its relevance to the news today. How's it relevant to the news today, guys? Well, the land that we are going to be discussing is the land that is currently being fought over uh, between Israel and the Palestines, uh, Palestinians. Um, and uh, it's the land that has been fought over for years and, and years. And and there, there are some Jews who would say that the uh, that the land belongs to Israel because of the promises God made to Abraham. I have no dog in in who gets that land today in that in that issue. I you know I think all of us are horrified by some of the horrific things going on over there. Our point isn't to get into the politics of what's going on today, nor to uh, make it seem that um, everybody is equally guilty. No, that, that's not the point either. Uh, but our point is to say, does the Bible, when it talks about promises to Abraham, have some relevance to who gets that land today? And um, it's not just Jews who will say that it does. A lot of evangelical believers, people who would say they're Christians, they are premillennialists, and they insist that God promised that land to Israel, and so it's Israel's. And so we want to take a look at the promises in the Bible and see if they have any bearing on what's going on today. Does that work? Yep, I think it'd be helpful. Now, I know uh, we, we've done one program together since I was back from my travels in which we talked about this, and you all did it one week while I wasn't here, but we'll take one more shot at it. And, and, and we didn't do it with fancy PowerPoint, nor with uh, eloquent wording. Ah, well, I don't. We, let's get the fancy PowerPoint up in here then. If that's what makes it special today, let's do that. All right, here we go. Um, so we're going to talk about the land promise. And there are three words we're going to talk about, everlasting, conditional, and typological. And so first of all, everlasting. In what sense was the land to be an everlasting possession? And then we're going to talk about the fact that keeping the land was conditional. It wasn't that this is just the land of the Jews forever, no matter what. And then we'll talk about the significance of the land promise ultimately being typological. So let's let's start with this one. Um, people will point to the fact that 
the Bible said this was to be an everlasting possession. God said it was to be an everlasting possession to Abraham and his descendants. Did he say that? Uh, he absolutely said that. And Jeff, allow me to play the uh, the naive advocate. How could that be confusing? I mean, everlasting means everlasting, right? Yeah, there it is. I will give to you and to your seat after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So I, I get your point. I get your point. Uh, but in the very same chapter where it says that, just five verses later, circumcision is said to be an everlasting covenant. There it is, verse 13. It was in verse 8 where it said the land was to be an everlasting possession. And then in verse 13, circumcision is to be an everlasting covenant. So guys, what of that? Is is circumcision still required today? Well, no. Um, that's that that's not something that we uh, would see in the New Testament as being uh, essential or, or required. Galatians 5.15, neither circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. 1 Corinthians 7.19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. I, I can see you're still playing the the skeptic here. The, the, the You're not ready to concede the point here, but you're, you're conceding at least the point of regarding circumcision. Well, then I'll, I'll play the, the guy who just wants to go along with everything. Jeff, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. Circumcision, yeah. Circumcision is, is nothing. I mean, that's what that text you put on here says. You keep, you guys keep that up, do it for the next one. Oh, we got to do this. First of all, let's, let's read these verses from chapter 17, verse seven down through verse 11. Um, so this is when Abraham is 99 years old and God appears to him, changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Verse 70 says, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Let's talk about a relationship between God and Abraham's descendants. And he says uh, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So God is defining a special relationship between himself and the descendants of Abraham. And then he says, and I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I'll be their God. So this covenant that God is making is described as having two parts, the relationship between God and the people and the land that he gives them. And then God further said to Abraham in verse 9, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants. You've got to keep it. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you, after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then here's the, the clincher in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. It looks to me like he's saying this covenant whereby I define a relationship between me and the descendants of Abraham, God and the descendants of Abraham, and give them the land. The sign of that covenant is circumcision. Um, is that what it's saying? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's pretty clear language there, like you just pointed out. Circumcision came to an end, so what does that tell us? So maybe, does everlasting not always mean like forever and ever without end? Um, thinking about a popular country song. Yeah, <laughs> and by the way, Chase, that would be... Randy Travis. There you go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow, I'm impressed. Wow. <laughs> The Sabbath was to be an everlasting covenant. Here is the passage in Exodus 31, 16. Um, they're to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. 
what does the New Testament say about that? About well, the seventh day Sabbath. Well, I mean, Jesus observed it. We we saw him being careful to observe it, and um, he he made sure not to break any of the rules there. Joe's side. Yeah, I think you guys gotta keep straight who's doing what here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, in Hebrews chapter four, it talks about there being an ultimate rest. Jesus said that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, and so there would be a fulfillment of that. And yeah, that gets to the typological idea, but let's let's work on just this idea. You know, in Colossians 2:16, Paul talks about the Sabbath. He's talking about the seventh-day Sabbath, and he says, Don't let anybody judge you in this or various other aspects of the law of Moses that he mentions. He says they're just a shadow. The, the reality, the body is of Christ. And so it was an everlasting covenant. And yet Paul says, well, it was just a shadow. The reality is of Christ. We'll come to the typological thing in, in a minute, Chase. That's all right. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Passover was said to be a perpetual statute. This is the passage when the Passover was originally instituted back in Exodus chapter 12. And they were to celebrate it as a perpetual statute. And the word perpetual, Joe, is the same word that was translated everlasting. So all these things are called everlasting. The Aaronic priesthood was to be a perpetual statute. Here's the passage. That is the priesthood that was Aaron and his sons, his descendants. Uh, they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. Same word. We come to the New Testament and Hebrews chapter 7, verse uh, 12, I guess it is actually, talks about the priesthood being changed. It was made of necessity a change of the law. And it's talking about being changed from the descendants of Levi through Aaron. And so it, it was, So all of this raises the question that, Joe, I think you put it up, threw it out just a minute ago. Does everlasting necessarily mean without end to infinity. So does it mean that, that 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 land is a possession, the Sabbath has to continue, circumcision has to continue, without end unto infinity, even past the day of judgment? Why wouldn't that make sense for the land? Well, because, I mean, they're going to get it taken several different times uh, all throughout their history. But specifically, why would it not make sense for this to be to infinity beyond the day of judgment? So especially if we're, if we're thinking that we go to heaven, if you will, um, uh, that we are caught up to be with God in the air and uh, to, to be in Christ, in, in God's presence in heaven, then this land would no longer uh, be applicable. Yeah, if, if we take Second Peter 3 to talk about the destruction of this physical earth, that would kind of be inapplicable. Premillennialists, of course, believe that there is a future thousand-year reign when they get the land for a thousand years, but even they say that comes to an end at the end of a thousand years. So if in, if everlasting doesn't mean and cannot mean to infinity without end, then does it mean everlasting up until some point in time, maybe up until the Day of Judgment, or maybe up until the Christ would come? or maybe up until they are removed from the land because of their disobedience. And, and that brings us to the idea that the land promise, keeping the land was conditional. God gave it to them, but they were not promised they would have that land forever, regardless of what, uh, whatever. They, they, to keep it, they had to obey God. So okay, we'll move on to that point. Is that good? 
Yeah, I, I think the, mm -hmm. the, the, the priesthood argument is, is very compelling. I, you know, the other ones, I certainly agree with you on, on the other points as well. But to me, the, the ironic priesthood is, is just either Jesus is our high priest or he is not. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, that, that one to me is, is very powerful. So, all right. So then we're talking about the idea that it is conditional and you, you guys may or may not agree with me. I'd really like your honest thoughts about this. I think that the conditional nature of the land promise is already seen in the 10 commandments when they were at Mount Sinai and they're given the Ten Commandments, the command to honor your father and your mother is accompanied by a promise that your days may be prolonged in the land, which Yahweh your God gives you. Do you do you take that to be a promise that each individual would live a long life if he if he were obedient to his father's parents? Or do you take that to be a promise that the people would be long in the land if they were people who grew up obedient to their parents? Or do you take it to be both? I, I, I oh, go ahead, Chase. I'll let you. I, I've traditionally always taken it the first way that you had suggested, but um, you, when you were going over this with us earlier and just now, I think there's some validity to what you're saying. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I, I think the the latter, um, especially when you think about the this being given at Mount Sinai and um, thinking about the the other instructions given at Mount Sinai, I'm thinking especially about Leviticus chapter 19, um, uh, 18 and 19, that speaks in very similar ways um, uh, of uh, them being expelled from the land if they act like the uh, the Canaanites and so forth. Leviticus 18, um, you know, if if they yeah. fail to uh, to do certain things, the the land was the was what was going to be taken from them. Yeah. Um, and, and I could certainly see an argument being made that God blessed them individually in various ways, the, the fruit of the womb, the, their crops, um, their shoes not wearing out, um, if they obeyed his commandments. Um, and I could certainly understand that it just makes good sense that if you're a person who grows up living an orderly life, being obedient to parents and learning the lessons from them, you're likely to live a longer life and that God could see to that. But I, in this passage, the fact that it says that your days may be prolonged in the land, which mm -hmm. Yahweh your God gives you, I think it at least includes the idea, if not even primarily so, um, that, that, that their stay in the land would be long if they obeyed this commandment, which indicates the conditional nature of, of keeping the land. And I don't know if Psalm 37 helps with any of this or not, but it seems to, uh, it, it at least agrees with that idea um, uh, of those who are unrighteous, evildoers versus those who are waiting on the Lord and inheriting the earth and so forth. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about Psalm 37 in, in just a few minutes. Okay. Um, I'll wait. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's, we'll get there. <clears throat> so, the idea that being conditional, I think, is seen in Deuteronomy 28. You mentioned Leviticus, but in Deuteronomy 28, you have these blessings if the people will obey God. But starting in verse 58, there's the warning. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law, which are written in this book, then various curses are pronounced. And if you come down to verse 63, it says you'll be torn from the land. Uh, if you don't obey, you're going to be torn from the land. 
And so we go back to our question, was it everlasting up until some event, like when they disobeyed God and went into captivity? That's what happened. They were torn from the land. And so anybody who supposes that the land belongs to the fleshly descendants of Abraham today, regardless of whatever they've done, misses the point that keeping that land was conditional. But that same passage in Deuteronomy also in two chapters later in chapter 30 does talk about that after they were torn from the land, God would bring them back, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. So verse three of Deuteronomy 30, then Yahweh, your God will return you from captivity and return his compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where your God has scattered you. So they were scattered. They went into captivity um, your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And so when did they return <clears throat> or did they? Uh, yeah, they, uh, we can look at second Chronicles 36 or Ezra one, uh, see them returning from captivity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Daniel nine in his prayer he recognized that the 70 years that Jeremiah had referenced were up. And so God was going to fulfill this promise to return the people. Yeah. But, but it was also said that it would only be a remnant that would return. Yeah. It wasn't a guarantee that everybody would return. Right. And Isaiah is, is prominent in making that clear. It will be in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. And again, in verse 22, only a remnant within them will return. Do you, either of you remember how many, was it 48,000 or how many were mentioned as returning in the book of Ezra? Yeah, almost exactly 48, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and of course, some people who did not return would be like Daniel who stayed in but Babylon and in Persia. Um, Mordecai and Esther, their family stayed in, mm -hmm. in Persia. When we get to new Testament times, you've got Jews living all over the world. They, you know, the day of Pentecost in Acts two is a testament to how many Jews live scattered in, in all the nations. And when they did return, those that returned, their prospering in the land would be conditional. Um, Deuteronomy 30 verse 5 where it talks about the return, the return Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers Yahweh your God will prosper you abundantly when you listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and so on so that, that also keeping the land would be conditional we come to the New Testament let's just come straight to this passage what's going on in Matthew chapter 23 Jesus is predicting or prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse oh, 30. sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, he, you're, you're, he does, really, right? He does in end. chapter, yeah, right at the yeah, end. So. You're thinking of 24, but you're actually right about 23, right at the end of 23. He says, Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. Yeah. What does desolate mean? Destroyed. Just destroyed, gone. Destroyed, abandoned, yeah. And then, then Chase, in the next chapter... Jesus is walking in Jerusalem um, uh, among the buildings of the temple with his disciples. And they're, they're pointing out it was, uh, there was a great renovation underway at this time um, of the temple grounds. And the disciples are pointing out, look at this, look at this. And, and Chase, would you read this? 
And coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along, and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And then later in the chapter, he says when that's going to happen, doesn't he? Yeah, it, it, it'll be this, before this generation dies, essentially. Yeah, in verse 34. And, and that's what happens within 40 years of Jesus saying this. Uh, the temple is destroyed. The Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem. And that is essentially the end of, it's not the end of Jews, certainly, but it's the end of, the, the Jews were subject to the Romans even prior to this. But at this time, the Romans kind of come and just do away with the, the Jewish state as a, as a political entity. Mm -hmm. um, so that brings us to this. And Joe, this will get us back into a couple of points. Or the, you, Joe and Chase, both of you have kind of anticipated this already. When God made the promise to Abraham that his descendants would get the land, it was not just about the physical land. Like so many things in the Old Testament that were physical, God used those things to teach about something spiritual. Circumcision, it was said to be an everlasting covenant, uh, but it anticipated a spiritual circumcision. So there's a sense in which these things that were said to be everlasting, they do continue today in a spiritual sense. Um, you know, I was thinking about this particular one, guys. And of course, Paul has Timothy circumcised, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was going back and noticing the text and, and I've read it a hundred times and I prob probably could have paraphrased it pretty well, but it just jumped out at me this time. In Acts chapter 16, where it says that he had Timothy circumcised, Paul took Timothy and circumcised him, it doesn't say because this was an everlasting covenant. It doesn't say because God requires this of the people. It's interesting what it says in Acts chapter 16 and verse 3, Paul would have uh, actually, yeah, he took and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those parts. Right. What an odd thing that what would have been to say that Paul was said, well, I'm going to circumcise him because of the Jews. If in fact, Paul had understood this is God's requirement. So I would say not only were Gentiles not required to be circumcised physically, not even Jews were at this point, even though Jews still practiced it. Yeah. But Paul does say in Romans chapter two, do you have it, Joe, Romans two? Uh, do not, but I get it. Two twenty-nine. Yeah, twenty-eight and twenty-nine. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And in Chase, you were you were getting to this point earlier. He had a seventh day Sabbath for the Jews, but if you if you look at the old testament there's several things that god did to point to the idea of a journey to a rest god created everything in six days and he rested on the seventh day god not only gave the jews a seventh day of rest he also a seventh year when the land was to enjoy its sabbath and not be planted um and then chase to your point when we talk about the people coming through the wilderness. Oh, I thought I had that map up next. I guess I'll get to it in a minute. Um, we'll come back to the Sabbath in a minute. Uh, 
uh, Christ uh, is our Passover. They had a Passover. Oh, Joe, you probably know this. Do you know about the inquiry Nathan got about somebody needing a, a sheep? Uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, and it may have been somebody who's sincerely just opening her Bible up saying, I want to do whatever it says. But what, what did she find in the Bible? Um, that uh, there was an offering that was required. And so uh, she had looked for a shepherd that would be willing to, to sell a sheep that she could sacrifice. And so she found my son, Nathan, he sells sheep for meat. And so she, she was interested in buying one so she could sacrifice it. And of course, then what he tried to explain is, and probably most of you listening to this webcast understand, we don't sacrifice sheep today. In the Passover, they would sacrifice a lamb and, and then eat it. But we don't do that today. And, and the reason is that was a shadow, Colossians 2, 16 again. That was a shadow of the things to come that are coming in Christ. The reality is Christ. And Paul calls Christ our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. In the Old Testament, when they, the original Passover, they killed the lamb, they took its blood, speared it on the doorpost and the lintel. And though in those houses where they did that, they were spared from the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. They were saved from death by the blood of the lamb. And that prefigures Jesus Christ, by whose blood we are saved from death. We're saved from death by the blood of the lamb. And so Paul calls Christ our Passover. So there's a sense in which, in the typological sense, Passover continues, but not the sacrificing of, of, a, of an animal. Rather, Christ is our Passover today. And then the Aaronic priesthood. Well, Joe, you were talking about this point earlier. Do we have Levitical priests today from the descendants of Aaron? Even if there... Yeah, even if we wanted to try, I don't think that we could accomplish that because we don't know, the Jews don't know what tribe they are from, if I understand that correctly. Yeah, if I, you know, sometimes we look at all those chapters in the Bible where you have a, a list, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and genealogical things, a lot of times we skip over them. But that there's important information in those. And I think it's in First Chronicles 6 where you have the, the Levitical genealogy. Right. And one of the purposes of that is so that those Jews who were descendants of Aaron, descendants of Levi through Aaron, they could know their genealogy and they could de de define themselves as as descendants of Aaron and so they could serve as priests. But today, the Jews do not have that information. Nobody can go back and, and point to a genealogical record that establishes them as descendants of Aaron. I think there's some who believe they are, but that's not the same thing. Yeah, and Ezra too, there were some who thought that they were, but because they couldn't prove it in the geneal genealogical lines, they were not allowed to serve. Good point. But, so in one sense, it, it was everlasting up until a point. In another sense, it does continue in its in the typological sense or typological sense in the fact that the Aaronic priesthood foreshadows us in first peter chapter two we are the spiritual house and we are the priests who serve in that house if we are god's people so there are those things now now chase to the to the israelites in the wilderness in hebrews 3 you want to make the point you were starting to make earlier yeah so yeah so hebrews 3 um the hebrew writer is making a a really cool argument from psalm 95 about not wanting to make the same mistakes the other Israelites did and that they were disobedient, they they failed the test and they end up dying in the wilderness. Um, 
and uh, he kind of he goes to carry that over into chat at the end of chapter three there into chapter four to talk about a Sabbath rest that we have. Um, yeah. And we don't want to miss out on that. So chapter four, verse one, therefore let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. So the Hebrew writer is picking up on this typology or typology. I don't know how to say it now. And yeah, I would say it wrong. <laughs> uh, and he's picking up on this idea that in the same way, it's not a literal land that we're going to inherit any longer. It's it's also not a literal rest that we're going to enter that, that's on this earth. But yeah, I, I don't else. think any of us who, who are hoping to attain unto this rest that's talked about here are planning on finding that in the literal land of Canaan. And yet that is the, the fulfillment, the typological fulfillment of, of the land promise. Um, we're going to get over here to the idea that this was even anticipating the Old Testament. But I think we've got a question from a viewer that kind of ties in with where we're going here. Do you have that question on screen, either of you? Yeah. So yeah. Randy, Randy asked, so what does Paul mean in Romans 11, 25 and 26 that all Israel will be saved? I think it's a very relevant question. Um, so the word so here, another translation might say thus, the point is in this manner. And um, what we're going to find here, I'll, I'll just sum up the point and then we'll show it. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter or Romans chapter nine in a moment here where he's going to define who is Israel. And that's, that's really the next question that we're going to get to here on screen. I'll, I'll skip past all of this and say, who is Israel today? And we're going to get to Romans 9, and we're going to find out that the, the true Israel today is not the fleshly descendants of Abraham, per se. It's, it's whether it's, it's those who are in Christ. And, and that will be true whether it's those who are fleshly Israelites or those who are Gentiles. If they're in Christ, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. And so in Romans 11, Paul goes through and he talks about how you had the Jews and some didn't believe. And so they're like the branches being broken off of, a, of an olive tree. And then you've got Gentiles who do believe. And so they're like branches that get grafted in. The olive tree uh, represents God's people. And, and the root of the olive tree are the promises God made to Abraham. But who is it that gets those things? Well, it's those who believe, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, those who believe in Christ. And so in that context, then, Paul says here in, in Romans, the 11th chapter, um, verse 25, I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel, fleshly Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That doesn't mean every single Gentile comes in. It means the Gentiles who are those described in the preceding verses, the ones who believe and thus get grafted in. And then in verse 26, and so, or in this manner, all Israel shall be saved. What is all Israel? Well, all Israel is all those who are in Christ. We'll make that very clear here in just a moment, but that's kind of the the, the quick answer. Good question, Randy, but let's see if we can make that more clear. Go ahead, Joe. Did you say that you have Romans 9 on your chart? Yeah, right here. Oh, there you go. All right. So, so we start talking about the idea that here Israelites who don't believe and, and they've been kicked out of the land and the land promise was conditional and they didn't meet the conditions and and now a bunch of Jews are lost and 
And so you might ask the question, has God's promise failed? And Paul says, no, it's not as though the word of God has failed. He says in the next line, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So Randy, this gets to your question, defining Israel here. The point of saying they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel He's saying the fleshly descendants of Israel aren't the whole of Israel. There are other people who help make out the nation of Israel, who help make up the nation of Israel, who are not fleshly descendants, who are not descended in a biological way from the man Israel. And then he says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. There are some people who are biologically Abraham's descendants. They're Jews, but they're not children. You may remember John 8 where Jesus confronted the Jews and they said, we don't need to be made free. We're children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to any, anybody. And Jesus granted that they were descendants of Abraham, but he said, as far as being children are concerned, you're children of the devil. And so here, uh, Paul is making the point that unbelieving Jews are not the, the children. And so who is Israel? Well, it's going to be those who, who believe. So you have Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. And in Galatians, he makes it clear that's true whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Uh, Christians are the true seed of Abraham. So going back to the point, Randy, when you have that statement in Romans 11, 26, so all Israel will be saved, it means thus in this manner, the breaking off of the unbelieving, the grafting in of the believing in this manner, all of the true Israel is going to be saved and the true Israel are those who are in Christ. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, he basically he already established the Israel he's talking about in chapter nine. Yeah, and so that that's clear in chapter eleven. That's a, that's the key to understanding a lot of Romans is understanding his language from previous sections. Yeah, and I think Galatians is helpful too. In Galatians, you actually have the phrase "the Israel of God." Yeah, Paul writing to Gentiles and talking about being the Israel of God. Um. So that's important. So who is Israel today? Well, Israel today, what would be another way of answering? Excuse me. What would be another way of answering that? Who is Israel today? Uh, Christ, those who put their faith in Christ. Those who put their faith in Christ. It'd be the body of Christ. It'd be the church of Jesus Christ. And this is this is a, a really an important point because premillennialists, the people who believe that there's a rapture coming and after that, there's going to be seven years here on earth where people are left behind. And after that, there's going to be a battle of Armageddon here on earth. And then there's going to be a thousand year reign on earth and all of that. They, they see a profound distinction between the, the church and the Jewish kingdom. They see those as, as different things. But Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. You're, an, you're part of the Israel of God. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the Jews and Gentiles reconciled to God together in one body. And that's the body of Christ. So that's and it's, the, it's always, and it's always been on the basis of faith and walking in obedience. Um, yeah, that that's one of the big things he's stressing in Galatians and in Romans, uh, because of course the, the people in the Old Testament, Abraham did not know Christ in the same way we do, but he was putting his trust and his faith in God and walking with Him. So, so Jeff, you've got you got verses six and seven from from Romans nine. Uh, you know, eight and nine to me are really just the again it's very similar to what you have there in galatians 3 but if i'm trying to answer a question to romans 11 um i really like to just be able to go on in in this same text because where we began our study talking about the promise to abraham is is what paul deals with specifically 
in Romans 9, verse 8, that is, those who are the children, uh, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. Right. Or this is the word of promise. At that time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And so we're dealing with children of the promise. It's the same point that Paul's making in Galatians, very, very similar, um, uh, the son promise and, and so forth, I, uh, uh, Hagar and Sarah and so forth. But it's really helpful. You can't get to Romans 11 without having gone through Romans 9. Yeah. And uh, another, and, and so that's maybe for an argumentation vantage point, I think that's really helpful as you're studying with somebody. From just sort of a practical vantage point, I love John 1 when Jesus met Nathaniel. Yeah. And he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Yeah. yeah. He's a real Israelite. You know, I, I just think that that really helps me to, to just kind of get it at, at my level. You know, um, forget about the, the theology and the doctrine and so forth. Just a practical vantage point. Nathaniel's a real Israelite. And uh, uh, at least, uh, Jeff, you know, Merton, uh, I think he was yeah. the first one that pointed out to me that the word indeed is is two words put together. And, uh, you know, he is an Israelite in deeds, uh -huh. in his action. Right. And uh, I, I just that's the person, the person that has the faith and the obedience to follow Jesus. You know, Nathaniel says, behold, the king of Israel and. Uh, you know, he Jesus is the king. Nathaniel is the is is a real Israelite. Yeah, good, good. All right. So um, you mentioned uh, Hagar and and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac. Let's do that here. So in Galatians four, Paul talks about Abraham, and he had a wife named Sarah. She was the free woman, and, and then he takes another wife. And who was that? Uh, Hagar. And she's a slave woman. Right. And first of all, he has a son by Hagar named Ishmael. And that was just a case of a man goes in, sleeps with a woman. She conceives and has a baby. Completely uh, normal event. Those kinds of things, that happens all the time. Nothing nothing about that that anybody would have looked at and said, wow, how did that happen? That's a, a natural Thing that happens, and so you can say Ishmael was born of the flesh. That is, he was born by not by some kind of supernatural, extraordinary event, but by natural means. What about when Sarah finally has a son? She gives birth to Isaac, Abraham being the father. How? What were the circumstances there? Uh, well, it was laugh-worthy um, uh, in, in Sarah's mind, at least. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, both of them well beyond childbearing years. She is about 90, and, and the Bible explicitly yeah. tells us not only had she never been able to have children, but if she ever could have had children, she's past the time of being able to have she's right. post menopausal. Well, and they, they laugh specifically at the idea of rearing children in their old age, too. Oh boy, that that would I can't I can't imagine. Now at my age, but not only that, but Paul says in Romans fourth chapter, Abraham looked at his own body now as good as dead. I think that's speaking to some incapacity there. Right. That that at this point, Abraham was not able to father a child. Now later on, he does, but it seems that part of what God did for him was to rejuvenate him. 
But when you have a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a child after she, when she's never been able to give birth and he is not he is not he has no capacity to father a child and uh that 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 doesn't happen that's an act of that only happened because god said it would and so isaac is said to be a, a child of promise and as paul develops the analogy he says that fleshly israel those who are jews just by virtue of their ancestry they're like ishmael there's nothing supernatural about that but those who are spiritual israel that is those who are in christ whether jew or gentile then they are like isaac they are children of abraham because god says so you remember when john the baptist said don't think that you sh you can say we're sons of abraham what did he say god could do god is able to raise up from, uh, children from these stones yeah raise up children of abraham from these stones God can take a stone and, and turn it into, that's a child of Abraham. You can't trace the genealogy of that stone back to Abraham. But that's what God has done in Christ. He's taken those who are in Christ and he's just said, you're descendants of Abraham, heirs according to promise. And so that's this passage in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. But what Paul goes on and does in this context where he talks about the fleshly Israel and the spiritual Israel, and how the fleshly Israel corresponds to Ishmael. He quotes from Genesis 21. It's here in, in Galatians 4.30. He quotes from Genesis 21 when Sarah got put out with Ishmael and she said to her husband, cast out the servant woman, that'd be Hagar, cast her out and her son, for the son of the servant woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. But when Paul has been talking about the son of the servant woman, Ishmael, He's, he's been talking about not just Ishmael himself, but he's been talking about fleshly Israel. That's who he says is represented by Ishmael, is fleshly Israel, those who are just Jews by ancestry. And so when Paul quotes this, his point is, those who are just descendants of Abraham by genealogical records, they will not be heirs. Who are going to be the heirs? Well, it's chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed heirs, according to promise. That's Jew or Gentile. But if, if your only claim to being an heir of Abraham is, is biology, genealogy, Paul says you won't be an heir. And so today, when we want to talk about who is Israel and the land promise and all of that, those who are the heirs of any promises God made to Abraham are not those who are just fleshly Jews. It's those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. I, I think that's clear. I hope that's clear. Um, but that's, that's, that's that. That's the end of that. So who inherits the land? Um, oh, Joe, I said we get to Psalm 37, so let's do that. Everybody knows Matthew chapter 5, verse 35. Most people will quote it, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But the word in both the Hebrew language and the New Testament language, Greek, this translated earth is the same word that's translated land, and you have to, you have to look at the context. When Jesus quotes this, what's he quoting when he says, blessed are the lowly or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth or the land? Psalm 37. Who wrote that? David. When David, or really any Jew, talked about the land, 
what did they have in mind? They they were thinking of the promised land. Yeah, uh, the that, that we, we we would normally assume, which would be the rest, which typologically points to our rest. And so I I really believe that when David says that in Psalm thirty seven eleven, I don't know what do you guys think when he says the the meek shall inherit the earth or the land, and then in verse twenty nine, the righteous shall dwell in the earth forever, or dwell in the land forever. Mm-hmm. Typologically, that's looking forward to God's people who will be in the habitation that God prepares for them, our rest forever. Does What do you think? Yeah, I think that's consistent. I'm not sure Joe's on the same page. Joe, you got a different thought? Uh, no, I think basically it is. I think sometimes some of the Old Testament uh, individuals had a greater grasp of uh, the spiritual realities than maybe what we give them credit for. Uh, that may be a, a different program, but... Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were looking for the better heavenly country. But, but, but your point stands. Yeah. All right. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for letting us go through that one more time, guys. Um, Real real quick. uh, Drew told us, let's remind the viewers, uh, if you have any information or any follow-up you want to have with us, go through the biblequest.org and you'll be able to figure out how to reach us there. Yeah, that's great. All right, we'll see you, Lord willing, next week. Thank you for listening to Bible Quest.